Hello and welcome to this Torch post-show conversation. I'm Kirsten Shepard-Barr and it's Saturday, March 12th, 2022, and we're in London at the Coronet Theatre before today's matinee performance of Henrik Ibsen's play, When We Dead Awaken. It's a new production adapted and directed by Shetil Bang Hansen and produced by the Coronet Theatre and the Norwegian Ibsen Company, featuring a Norwegian and British cast performing in a mixture of Norwegian and English with surtitles. If you're not familiar with the play, here's a quick rundown from the marketing copy. It is, a rare, it is rare that anyone gets the chance to discover a lost love. In the depths of winter, Rubeck, once a celebrated sculptor, returns to Norway with his estranged young wife, Maya, only to bump into his great lost love and muse, Irene. Is this their opportunity to return to a world where there is meaning, hope, and happiness, to awaken from the dead? When We Dead Awaken was Ibsen's last play, written in 1899, and the director of this production describes it as, quote, a strange, beautiful, and bitter play about art, love, ambition, and freedom, like a musical quartet, four people, four elements, four voices, four instruments, play different songs in a complicated melody. It is a play for our time, as they find themselves living in a changed world. Bewildered, how do they move forward? These are some of the themes that I'm exploring with Breach Theatre Company in our project to develop a new piece of theatre based on the life of Laura Keeler, one of Ibsen's real-life models for his own work. She was the inspiration for the character of Nora Helmer in his play A Doll's House. Our play in progress is being supported by the Knowledge Exchange Innovation Fund at the University of Oxford. We're interested in this play, When We Dead Awaken, because it is one of the most eloquent expressions of Ibsen's regret over the way he used Laura's life and character, and especially her private misfortunes, which he so publicly exposed in A Doll's House. For the podcast, I'll be in conversation about the show with Billy Barrett from Breach Theatre Company and Sen Sam, our research assistant on the project, who is a doctoral student at the University of Oxford. We'll talk about our takes on the production. For now, it's time to take our seats and wait for the curtain to go up on When We Dead Awaken. Yeah. So here we are after the show. Billy and Sen, um, what did you make of it? And where are we? Maybe we should start with that. We are in the bar of the Coronet Theatre, and it's an extraordinary space. Um, yeah. How do you yeah. describe it? Surrounded by Low-hanging lamps, candles, very uneven floor. It's very atmospheric in here. And Victorian it's... kind of plush furniture and very dark. Dark bookshelves. Yeah. Very chintzy. Yeah. Very chintzy. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And the theatre is almost preserved in a state of crumbling in a way that is very aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. Uh, and which I think the set of the play we've just seen married very well with um, because we had a kind of mountain made of rubble and furniture and it sort of blended with this auditorium that itself almost feels like it's falling down. Yeah. It was very atmospheric and, and there was a dimness to the whole, all the lighting. Um, and it's difficult to tell about that pile of furniture with the water coming out of it. There was, there was a stream of water coming out of this kind of mound of, of, of rubble and furniture. And it felt like it was very symbolic. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
and the play does talk about things being sort of um, wasted, you know, relationships, lives being wasted and kind of resurrecting mm. that. So, well, I was thinking because the play is, is his final play, am I right in saying that? Yeah. This is Ibsen's final play and in a way it's sort of reflecting on how he has used um, various people in his in his shows and I guess what I saw that mountain of rubble as is almost like the accumulating rubble of his career up to that yeah. point or of Rubeck, his kind of fictionalised avatar within the show it was like this lifetime's worth of furniture um, these domestic items maybe from his plays kind of gathered to make this massive mountain oh, yeah. of yeah. like a junkyard right yeah. now, mm. oh, I didn't think of it that that's great I didn't think and of it about the it? um no I love what you said about it being domestic items so you're right there were chairs and there were there were all kinds of things from a from a house it felt like there's a lot of discussion about house and home and what's the difference and and what it feels like that's eluded the artist you know having a proper home um, well and we've talked a lot about how Often people think of Ibsen's plays as taking place in these very stuffy domestic spaces, sort of 19th century drawing rooms, um, but that this play all takes place outside. And so it was interesting that we had yeah. this home furniture mm -hmm. creating this outside landscape, which when you read on the page, you kind of think, how would you ever realise that on stage? Yeah. Um, and I thought it was done really brilliantly in a way that felt like almost had been made of stuff from this theatre. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Actually, sitting in the barn, kind of, there's a a seamless continuity between the stage and the and the space here. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. There was a, I was certainly hearing wind, being, yeah, um, the sound of wind that was kind of signifying that it was the mountain, the mountains, but it was all very subtle, you know, and that little stream. Yeah, it's funny that we're talking so much about the atmosphere and the staging and this the space and yeah. you're not even really talking about the text what did you make of the fact that it was in it was a bilingual production I thought it was quite frustrating that the um, the subtitles weren't keeping pace with the with the speech yeah. mm. um, I thought that could have been handled a lot better um, I'm not sure every audience member would have necessarily <laughs> got that because but you I think have, in the minutes yeah. you know when sometimes you burst out into lag, yeah. you know into something that's obviously very emotive and obviously the the, the, the speech wasn't yeah. keeping up with yeah. it. You could see people going on oh, what's going on, what's going on, I'm not sure. Well I wondered if both of you were just ignoring the subtitles, but obviously you, you noticed no, there was, was that lag. Um, I always I, I always read subtitles yeah. or subtitles even if I know the language because I'm fascinated by translation, translation. and what are the choices they make. Yeah. And it was it was a wonderful translation I thought. Yeah. And I think it, it's just fascinating how you can you make those comparisons. Um, and I, I didn't have obviously didn't have the original text in in my head, mm. but it was it, I thought it was it worked very well. Were there any particular linguistic choices or turns of phrase that you notice in this translation? I thought the, the, the bit that really stood out for me was when she said to her husband, we're going to go into the forest tomorrow to catch a teddy bear. I don't know yes. whether that was a... a Bumsy, yeah. yeah. I thought about that as well because it, it isn't... It, it's a wonderful word that's usually used about a child's... Yeah. So it was a literal translation. Yeah. But it's also what you might playfully call a bear. Okay. Um, you know, oh, there's a sleeping Bamsi. If you, I mean... It was very literal. Yeah, I think that's the one thing. But then it could work, you know. Yeah, I enjoy, yeah, no, I enjoyed that whole linguistic aspect. Yeah, I mean, I, obviously, I'm very interested in the way Norwegian and English are interacting in place. So it was quite fascinating for me. Um, just a bit about the setting, I suppose. 
um, I guess a lot of the play is um, is about people who are trapped within their own world, and I did feel like there was a Ibsen is setting up this contrast between you know their feeling of entrapment um, and uh, the landscape being wide and free. As I think in this production, it felt like the setting was bringing in that sense of entrapment. So we're all you know feeling quite claustrophobically trapped within their lives, as opposed to feeling the contrast between the open space and you know, how they were feeling. Yeah. So the only bit of um, so despite the the, the the bit at the end when Maya is singing I'm free, I'm free, I just never really felt a sense of escape from mm -hmm. the place that we were in. I That's felt the same. I thought it was quite a restrained production in a lot of ways. I think the staging itself was often often quite static, which is I'm sure was a deliberate choice, but I didn't necessarily get a sense of that wild landscape that mm. they were often in. Yeah. Um, and when, yeah, ex exactly, you're right. When she's saying, I'm free, I'm free, I don't know that I necessarily felt that either, yeah. even at the end. Yeah. yeah, and it was funny because, I mean, I was, I kind of playfully wanted to start the podcast by saying, So, Billy, how do you stage an avalanche? <laughs> because here we have, like, partially a symbolic stage, but partially a realistic one with the actual stream they had. They had a real stream with real water. Um, it's not a real stream, but you know, there was actual water. And there was a moment when, that one of my favorite moments was when it started bubbling. And it was right when there was this big shift in tone where they became more lighthearted when they, they suddenly just got out of that heavy mode of, of agonizingly talking about their past. And then suddenly it was playful and kind of splashing water at each other in the, the bubbling brook and it really worked. I thought that was lovely, but I'm curious how you experienced that. Did you did you both have the same feeling that something had shifted? Yeah, I registered a shift, but I wasn't quite sure the logic for. I thought it was quite sudden how it happened. That there was, it didn't really lead us into it. That you know, as you say, first it was very very heavy, and that was sort of just how it was. And then suddenly he splashes some water, and bam, the atmosphere changes. It, I just it felt like yeah, I see. It was a bit yeah. Too, too quick for me. It was a, yeah, yeah. night and day. Kind of that thing. was the only moment, wasn't it, where we had water coming out? Yeah. Of that. Yeah, that was. Because it was taking us back to their summers in this cottage. Yeah. Um, and the music yeah. came on again and it was idyllic. And yeah. I agree, it was a little bit sudden. I welcomed the, the sound of the, the stream. Yeah. I, really, I loved hearing that and I felt like this is a play that can do with a lot of, uh, like a soundscape, mm. you know? with the wind and the... And I guess that the director had talked about there being these four elements. So I was kind of looking out for that. And I guess they had earth and you had one of the characters talking about fire burning inside her. Mm. And this awful thing of the fire having been quenched by the artist who kind of used her. Which brings us on to the, the reason we came to this, uh, which I mentioned in the introduction, which is that we have a project. And I sat the whole time listening listening for overtones of, you know, the Laura Keeler story. I, mm. I, I was fascinated by how my whole experience of the play was completely about that and seeing the play in that light. But I'm not sure the production at all was interested in that. So it's an interesting, yeah. um, it's how you come to it with different perspectives, I guess. But did you think that it did work in light of the kinds of things we're thinking about with our it's, it's strange actually because when I when we reread the play um, a few weeks ago just after having talked about Laura Keeler for me every line of the play jumped out at me as being relevant to Laura <laughs> Keeler yeah it was, there were moments in that production when I almost forgot about Laura Keeler and I was just watching a production for the production and I and you know even when Irene came on I, I didn't really 
it, you know, it took me a while to remember that I'm here because you know this is a, we're trying to think about its relevance to Laura yeah. Keeler, but mm. I didn't really think it picked up on that. I just um, yeah, I, I, I suppose thematically there was a strong sense of her hurt and her, um, you know, the damage that he had caused her by using her as a model for, for his artwork. Um, but in terms of what we are trying to say about whether Ibsen really registered the hurt that he had caused her, I don't know how much the, 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 act, the sculptor in, in the play, Rubeck, really takes that on board. You know, like I was, like I was saying, there's this section which is quite heavy. He's talking, he, they're all talking about how much he has hurt her, um, he and Irene. Um, and then and then just before we, then he says this thing, and then she says, at last, at last. And then before we know it, we're kind of in playful, nostalgic mode again. And, and I wonder whether, I wonder whether it really, you know, it was really that much of a, the way we've been thinking about the play as his, um, is, is, is him accepting the hurt that he has done to Laura Keeler? How much of that is in our minds rather than in his production? That is really interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I was definitely watching it through the lens of, partly for practical reasons, because I think mm. there's there's sections of this play that we might want to drop into our show that yeah. we're creating um, to set up that parallel of uh, the real meeting between Ibsen and Laura Keeler later in life and then this kind of imagined one. So I was obviously watching it with an eye to that. What are the moments that really, really speak to that relationship and that situation? Um, but it didn't feel like the production was necessarily interested in that, which is completely understandable because yeah. it's not a context that most audiences will be bringing to it. It felt, um, I mean, just hearing you uh, read out the marketing copy, I think that it's, it feels a bit more interested in this rekindling of the relationship yeah. later on from a romantic perspective. Yeah. Which there may have been an element with Laura Keeler, but it, it's not uh, the principal kind of thing that we've been talking yeah. about, is it? Well, the interesting thing is with Laura Keeler, she had her own career. She was a writer. She was inspired by his plays when she was like 18 to write a sequel to his famous play, Brand. And there she is publishing this book at eight, 18 or whatever she was. And so right from the beginning, her interest in him is as a, a kind of, um, I mean, in a way, she sees him as the model writer. I mean, the story is very much about how he uses her as a model, but actually right all the way through, he's, she's looked up to him. As a, so it's really devastating to be sort of betrayed by her mentor, you know. But that element of the play we just saw, When We Dead Awaken, that's all about the rekindling of uh, love, it felt like... Um, to me, that there isn't that additional element you get with the Laura Keeler story, which is that she has her own career, she has her own yeah. calling. And in in this, and Ibsen does this again and again in plays, he kind of thinks through motherhood, and, and he has speeches where he talks about how women are mothers, and it's as mothers that they will kind of rescue the human race and be our saviors. But it's a limiting in a way, isn't it? That that he doesn't think about women having other other callings. A lot of his plays keep talking about motherhood as their calling, mm. and that they've missed out on it. And so it seemed interesting to kind of get that, even in his last play, he's still kind of talking about that. Well, and he's still not recognizing her as an artist herself. She's still the yeah. the model. Yeah. And that's interesting. You talk about the motherhood. Um, you know, within this play, Irene talks about their child, mm-hmm. um, the statue, which I don't, I don't feel is a way that Laura Keeler might have talked about a doll's house. No. The text <laughs> no. as their shared yeah. child. No, no. Yeah. Well, she might have said 
my child. Yeah. <laughs> something well, I really. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Something I really thought actually watching it this time, just as the lights were going down, Kirsten, you mentioned that you're in the process of translating this letter. Yes, that Zen found in the Aftenposten. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in which um, Laura Keeler sort of expresses that the, her issue isn't just that her story was sort of taken without her consent and she was represented, but that actually her character was misrepresented. And the moment in this play that I was thinking about that is when she says, um, oh, there are other people in the statue yeah. now, not just yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Oh, does the light still shine yeah. radiantly on my face? And you see the panic in her. I, yeah. I really felt that yeah. throughout. A lot of people laughing in the audience. Yeah. yeah. As she realises that the version of herself within the statue that she signed off on or that they co-created was becoming further and further yeah. away yeah. from herself. Yeah. And that made me think about the Yeah, yeah. yeah and there's so a great yeah. bit when she says, what, so you move me into the background? He says, no, into the middle ground. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it's, it's so jarring for her because all that time, the one thing that's kept her going seems to have been, well, at least she's the key point of the, you know, it's just her. She's, I mean, you can call it egotistical, but it's the thing that has she's given her life she mm. sees herself as having given her life right well and apparently it took weeks and weeks when she yeah. says oh we take a, a weekend break from our work together yeah so obviously she was modeling for a long time for this statue yeah, yeah. or for several statues yeah it's really interesting because one of the things that that um he also seems to have struggled with a lot is this not just the guilt over the way the artist is torn between family and the art the calling um, but also there's kind of a gesturing towards male impotence I and mean, sexual impotence mm. is an issue in this work it really comes out when she's kind of saying there I was standing in front of you naked and lots of men threw themselves at me but you just so self-controlled <laughs> yeah you were so self-controlled mm. and I wondered how that comes into play in, in your mind with this piece does it does it have to be you know is that it's interesting that he includes that well, it's, yeah, I mean, if this is his kind of reckon, yeah. reckoning with his past, it's very, yeah. it's bold to sort of present himself as totally sexually dysfunctional, yeah. along with the other whole litany of things he's done. Yeah, yeah, it is interesting. And then that link to, well, they're literally childless, but they had this art that was their child. So all the kind of idea of surrogate children and dead children and murdered children, it's very... It's very it's strong motif. Yeah. But uh, can't help but think about children in Laura Keeler's life as well, because she. I think there was a bit of a mention in this play. Did you catch that? There was something about. Um, was she? Did she say? I mean, did she say something about feeling mad or, or trapped in a literal sense, or actually actually having been put into a kind of asylum? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does yeah. talk about she that, does doesn't talk she? About that. Yeah, she says she was going crazy, and you know that's when she was buried um, alive, and they put me into a padded cell, and no one could hear her screaming. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yes. And so you're never really sure—is yeah. that literal, or is yeah. that just yeah. you know? Is she saying that's how I felt? Yeah. But we know from Laura Keeler's that was story that she—I mean, it wasn't it that she was actually nursing her her newborn child and then she was she her husband had her put into a an asylum is that yeah i think so i mean i think they're two different stories one is that she was still nursing her her baby and her husband removed her from her unweaned baby um, and put her in a mental asylum the other one um is that she had had her baby but she was pregnant again when she was in a mental asylum and her baby was quite young i'm not sure which one of those two something for us to work on yeah But it's pretty bad either way. Yeah. Um, when you get the sense yeah. that the nun, obviously she's kind of a symbolic figure, but also is she 
a literal figure kind of keeping tabs on this woman who... Mm. Yeah, what did you make of her? Because I've never figured her out in the yeah. play or in the this production. Yeah, they, yeah she wasn't in this as much as... Yeah. She was in my mind a lot when we yeah, read she it. Was, yeah. So she was less present than I was expecting. I think yeah. there's a... Yeah, in the play, I think there's a lot more of her walking around um, shaking her keys. And I don't, I don't think yeah. she did that as much in the production yeah. as she's meant to yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, well, one of the things we, we um, like to ask in these podcasts is, well, if we had been involved, because here we are, we're doing a project from the ground up, we're devising a piece of theatre, but for this production, what if we had been brought on to advise? What would we have done? What would we have said? Um, just what might your thoughts be on, on that? I think the water... <laughs> I think I would have made more of the water. I think water's difficult on stage for practical, logistical reasons. Stage managers must hate it. Um, I saw uh, Portia Coughlin, the Marina Carr play at the Abbey in Dublin a couple of weeks ago, which again very prominently figures a stream, uh, which the main character drowns herself in. So throughout the play, she's kind of rolling in it and just getting soaking wet, and it's very present. And I think, you know, we've talked about the wildness of the landscape and the setting in this play. And I kind of feel like there were certain set elements that I wanted to be interacted with more or more physically. It almost felt like, you know, as you do with a play, you rehearse it in a rehearsal room, then the set kind of arrives and then it all there. And I, I didn't ever feel that the action of the play married that well with the physical yeah. set pieces. Yeah. Mm. So I wanted them to swim in the stream. So you wanted, you would have, so just so I'm sure I get it, so you would have kept the water but made more of the water. You would have had more bigger water? Stream. Yeah, I think a bigger, a bigger stream, stream. A wider stream. I mean, they did a bit. It was yeah. obviously, like yeah. I was saying, it's a logistical challenge, but there was a little bit of kind of putting the hands in the water, but I think if you're going to do yeah. it, you've got to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think rather yeah. than one moment yeah. where we get this kind of water feature coming down, yeah. I wanted yeah. a, a cascading. Ah, yeah, absolutely. Did you see, the, agree, did you yeah. see the Rosmer's Home? With, um, no, when, did. Yes, I did. Yeah, did you yeah. see that one where the yeah, end, at the end, the whole stage was amazing. It was yeah, yeah, really yeah. exciting. Yeah. It was just inundated yeah. with water. Yeah, it can be done. And yeah. then there was also a lady from the sea, I think at the Donner or the Almeida. We had a big pool, rock pool yeah. on the side, and she yeah. goes into it and comes out of it all the exactly. time. Exactly, and there yeah, was yeah. even a moment, I think, where yeah. she was kind of sitting, um, in a white almost dress. looking like the, yeah. the Little Mermaid statue. Yeah. In just, it, was, it was a nice use of water. Mm-hmm. And given the limitations of size on that stage, I think yeah. they did make the most, most of that. But here, they did have more space here, where they could have probably yeah. done more with water. It reminds me of, do you remember in the turbine hall in the tape, there was that crack? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shibboleth, I think that was. Yeah. Which is, you know, yeah. I kind of just wanted, I wanted something wider. Yeah. Wider and deeper. Yeah. I agree. I think they could have done more of the set and they could have done more to marry the production with the set. So mm. uh, there's a lot of talk about um, verticality in Ibsen's plays. And I think verticality is obviously very important, specifically in this play, which, you know, ends with this avalanche and stuff. So, I mean, even if working within the current set, I mean, that, that, that mountain of rubble, I feel, could have been maybe even just higher, taller. Or it could have grown through it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, like in that Three Sisters production when you keep adding more stuff to it. But also, so I think, you know, especially at the end when they're walking up the mountain, more could have been done to maybe make use of it as a place they could be climbing, you know, and I, I, or, you know, just to give us a sense of them actually ascending from the stage. Because I think otherwise the play was very horizontal in a way, it all kind of stayed to one plane. Yeah. 
there wasn't much, you know, like you say, you could sort of swum in the water a bit more or, you know, gone up, climb the mountain of rubble or something, but more to give us a sense of the different, you know, planes on which the play was working on. Yeah, that's true. I think particularly as well, because we've talked about how the ending and the avalanche was done by basically narrating the stage directions, which mm -hmm. I, I liked as a as a technique and as a way of solving that big theatrical problem. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought because the rest of the play had also been quite restrained, it almost didn't feel like a huge contrast. Whereas if we'd had, you know, um, Zen pointed out that a whole scene with a, a struggle with a knife was cut. I think if we'd had a lot more of that um, physical drama, then that more coldly delivered ending would have landed a bit better for me, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, well, I was, I'm, you know, it's a wonderful privilege to be able to sit next to an actual theatre maker who really knows what to do with, with staging. And I was thinking all the time, I want to ask you, would you, because this production hovered between realism and symbolism in a way. I mean, it was kind of trying to be both, perhaps. Would you have gone completely in into the kind of more, in the way that when you, with your production, it's true, it's true, it's true, where you can indicate things through, let's say, a bucket of gold paint really powerfully becomes something else. And would you have gone completely in that direction with, with this production? Would you have said, let's let's not um, even show the, the woman clad in black, you know, the, there, there's a way that you can do this, you can do it suggestively, or I, I don't know, I just throw that out there. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think I definitely would have tried to find, because within the play as well there's this struggle between the kind of civilised, like, high art world and then this very elemental, rough, bear hunter. Yeah. And I think I would have tried to make more of that struggle between kind of nature and culture. Oh, um, yeah. So I guess it's like me again saying I want them swimming in the river. I think I would have wanted yeah. something a bit rougher to contrast with yeah. what was very mm. um, kind of pristine otherwise. Yeah. yeah, maybe even bring the dogs on for a bit. Bring the dogs on. <laughs> yeah. okay. Let's talk about how you would do that. <laughs> I thought it was interesting going back to your earlier point. So it's a different question about you had one English speaking actor. Yeah. Um, and it was interesting that it was all time. Yeah who was, I guess, the kind the of outsider. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I wondered whether, because we had talked on our reading as well, how um, Irene's character is something of a foreigner as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And that might have been an interesting choice if they'd done that, I was thinking. Yeah. If she had yeah. been the English-speaking performer. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Can I ask you about the knife she keeps talking about? Because I didn't see a knife. But she said, I have a knife, I have this knife. And it's sort of indicating that she's bumped off her husband. Her husband's either committed suicide or she's killed one of them or something. But it's there's a murderous kind of, you know, angle to this, this woman slightly unhinged. Um, and did you did you want to see a knife? <laughs> I'd have liked to I, see a knife. I would yeah. have liked to see, have seen a knife. Or at least have, so Zen pointed out that quite a lot of that scene is cut. Where yeah, you I think we're meant think, to see a knife. Yeah, yeah. aren't she yeah. meant yeah, we are. in there? Yeah, because yeah. she, doesn't she kind of... Brandish it. Yeah, yeah she draws the knife, her, and then she coming for her revenge, isn't she? Yeah, she, she draws the knife, and um, yeah. and then and then Rubek grabs it, doesn't she? And he says, "Give yes. me that knife." And she says, "No, you're not having it." Yeah. And then they have a bit of a fight over it before they have the yeah. semi-reconciliation, and then they get buried <laughs> by the avalanche. Yeah, and all I of that, that was scene. cut. I think that, I think that's important. Yeah. I'm not. I don't. I don't. I'm not sure why they cut it. I guess because 
well, maybe, you know, we talked about how the production is interested in this rekindling. And maybe yeah. that's a bit of a problem yeah. when you go with, yeah. with that idea. Because there was a strange sweetness to the, to the conclusion, wasn't there? When they stood there and they were holding hands and his music came out and they looked at each other and they said, is there any chance, Irene, we can recover our love? No, I don't think so. But, you know, everything, the music, the setting, the holding hands and all that, were, were pushing towards them, wanting them to get back together almost, even if the script was saying no. But had they had that fight with the, the knife and the possibility of death, then maybe it wouldn't have been, it would have been more ambiguous as to whether that reconciliation meant reconciliation or not. Yeah. And whether that was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> that could be signalling our, <laughs> our the end of our podcast. Should we draw draw a line under it and um, a bubbling stream across it? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both, and uh, and this was a, a great occasion to have a chat about this when we dead awaken. Mm-hmm.